We'll also read for us from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Here again, the Word of God. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you ask now that you would speak to us and strengthen us through your word, that you would equip us and empower us for service, faithful service, wise service in your kingdom. This we pray through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The letter of James often sounds more like a sermon than it does a letter. Uh, In fact, it seems James really doesn't have much of a voice of his own. It really sounds a lot like a sermon of Jesus. James echoes the language of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus again and again, especially he echoes Matthew's gospel. And certainly that's true here in these verses we just read where he speaks of two categories of brothers, the rich and the poor. Jesus often invoked those same categories. We just read an example of this in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus speaks of the rich and the poor as identifiable groups. James, following Jesus, gives ethical instructions specifically tailored to our economic condition. Now, it is certainly true, as Proverbs 22 says, the rich and the poor have a common bond, for the Lord made them both. It is certainly true that rich Christians and poor Christians share a common salvation. They're members of the same church, the same royal priesthood. But it is also true that their varying economic circumstances mean that that means that they have different obligations, different callings in certain areas of life, and certainly different temptations they face. Remember, James is writing to what he calls the diaspora, these Christians who have, these Jewish Christians who have fanned out from Jerusalem after Stephen's martyrdom. Many of them would have had to flee on short notice. They were suddenly refugees on the run, a persecuted minority. Many of them probably left Jerusalem with little more than the clothes they were wearing, the shirts on their backs. And so they suddenly found themselves in poverty. Others might have had some form of portable wealth they could take with them, uh, money or gems or gold or something. And so they were relatively rich and in relatively good shape financially. James writes into this economically mixed, financially diverse community of churches. I think he's especially addressing the leadership of the churches. You might have some churches with wealthier pastors, some with poorer pastors. Whatever the case, James is addressing two different categories of Christians here, Jewish Christians, the rich and the poor. They probably have Matthew's Gospel. And James is writing a follow-up to Matthew's Gospel, helping them to apply the teachings of Jesus to a new context as they are now the scattered people of God. I said last week when we looked at the double-minded man that God calls us to lives of integrity. 
And we saw how integrity flows out of identity. Well, here James is giving new identities to the rich and poor in the church. He's not talking about rich and poor in general. That's important to understand. He's talking about rich and poor brothers. Obviously, you've got four categories of people. You've got the faithful rich and the faithful poor. And you've got the unfaithful rich and the unfaithful poor. James here is talking about rich and poor in the church. Rich and poor brothers. Rich and poor within the church family. And he's telling them something they need to know about their identity. Something that goes much deeper than their economic situation, but is very much related to it. Now, later on in the letter, he's going to delve into the responsibilities of the rich towards the poor. And uh, when we get there, we'll talk about that. Though we'll hint at it a little bit this morning. But it's important to note that's not the main purpose of these verses, 9 through 11 or 9 through 12 in James chapter 1. These verses are primarily about identity. They're about identity more than obligation because identity establishes obligation. And obligation flows out of identity. So he wants to say to the rich, this is who you are. And to the poor, this is who you are. If you look at the letter as a whole, James is a virtual crash course in the economics of the early church. It's an apostolic economics. And of course, it's still very relevant to us. We can't just relegate it to the dustbin of history. It's an economics for us today because it is a gospel-based economics. The very fact that rich and poor are identifiable and distinguishable tells you something important. The church is not an egalitarian society. The church was never designed to be an egalitarian society in which everyone is economically equal or supposed to be economically equal to everyone else. Sometimes you hear people hold that out as a goal, that that's what a just society would look like. But God simply hasn't made the world that way, and he hasn't made his church that way either. It is often often true that the poor are poor because of some kind of injustice or oppression. Uh, because of an, an oppressive system that is rigged against them in some way. Sometimes that is the cause of poverty. Certainly that would seem to be the case here with these poor Christians James is addressing. It seems the system is rigged against them. And in those cases, we should work to see those injustices addressed and rectified. And certainly as we do so, we will see some of that gap between the rich and the poor close. In other cases, people fall into poverty through no fault of their own, but rather, we could say, due to the fallenness of the world. And so a kid's parents are killed in a car crash, and he's left an orphan and left destitute. Or someone gets an illness that keeps them from being able to work, and so they slide into financial difficulty. Or perhaps they're persecuted for their faith, which again seems to be at least part of what's driving the poverty here in those James is writing to And then, of course, there are those situations where someone falls into poverty largely through faults of their own. Laziness, irresponsibility, the lack of any kind of work ethic. So there are different causes of poverty, different ways people end up in uh, this condition that we call poverty. And in all of these cases, those who are better off have an obligation to help, to seek to uh, address the poverty, to ameliorate the suffering in some way. But the way we do that largely depends on the causes of the poverty in any given case. We cannot solve the problem without identifying its cause. 
The reality is, even if you took all the wealth in our nation and redistributed it equally to each person, within five minutes of doing that, you'd have some people who had doubled their money and some people who would be broke. Because that's just how it is. No economic system this side of glory can ever totally eradicate poverty. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. The fact is, wealth is not going to ever be equally distributed, evenly distributed across everybody. And this is not true of anything else either. Physical attractiveness is not evenly distributed across the human race. Athletic ability, intellectual ability, these are not evenly distributed across the human race. Even spiritual gifts within the church are not evenly distributed. The only way that... If you make equality the goal, the only way you can attempt to bring that about, to completely close the gap between rich and poor, to eliminate this distinction between rich and poor, is through government force. And we're going to see as we work our way through James, that's not the biblical vision of a just society. The rich do have obligations towards the poor. And we'll unpack those more and more as we go through this letter. But the fact that we have rich and poor is not in itself a problem. It's simply the way God's world works. So what does James say to the rich Christian and the poor Christian? It says, let the poor brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation. What James says is full of paradoxes. The poor brother is in low circumstances But God has exalted him and granted him spiritual riches beyond measure. In other words, the poor brother is rich. The poor brother is rich in the ways that really matter. The lowly brother is exalted. In Christ, even the poorest Christian in the world has greater riches than any amount of silver or gold or stocks and bonds could ever provide. Meanwhile, the rich brother should boast in his Humiliation Again, this is paradoxical. Boasting and being brought low. Exalting and being brought low. The rich brother is in exalted economic circumstances, but the gospel humbles him. Wisdom has humbled him, reminding him that he is a sinner, that his riches are a gift, that his riches are not permanent, that everything he has has been given to him out of God's mercy. And because his riches are not permanent, James goes on to say to the rich man, he, or his riches, are like a flower of the grass passing away, for the sun rises with its heat and withers the grass. Its flower fades and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. This running about to get rich doesn't lead anywhere in the end. This language about the grass withering and the flower fading, it's really an echo of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 is one of the most quoted chapters of the Old Testament in the New. In Isaiah 40, the prophet says, the grass fades and the flower withers, but the word of the Lord is forever. Riches are temporary, the word will last. Riches don't last, the word does. James does not want the rich man to have a false sense of confidence or a false sense of security because of his riches. The rich man is only wise, he's only righteous, if he trusts in what does not fade or wither. 
Wealth allows you to surround yourself with beauty and comfort. But James says that beauty and that comfort doesn't last. And to see this, all you have to do is look at nature. James says, look at those beautiful wildflowers that fill the meadows every spring. But then the scorching summer sun burns them all up. And so it is with the rich man's riches. They're not stable. They're not lasting. You can go to bed rich and wake up poor. That's just how it is. Riches are fleeting, so don't rest in them. Don't trust in them. Proverbs 23 has a similar picture. It describes riches sprouting wings and flying off like an eagle out of reach. They're lost. The rich are tempted to boast in their riches, but as Jeremiah 9 says, Jeremiah 9 says, let the rich man boast not in his riches, but in this, that he knows me. Because that's what's lasting. Knowing the Lord, not the wealth. And that's James' counsel to the rich man as well. Don't boast in your riches. Boast in your your humility. Boast in the fact that you've been brought low, that you've been humbled. Because God has humbled you, you can receive His salvation. Humility is really the bedrock grace of the Christian life. The whole Christian life is built upon this foundation of humility. If you will not humble yourself, you cannot receive God's salvation. If you exalt yourself, God will cast you down. But if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. The rich man has been exalted, but he's got to humble himself in order to receive God's salvation. James says to the rich man, don't boast in your financial position, but in your spiritual position. However rich you are, remember, however rich you are materially, remember that spiritually you are bankrupt. You're poor in spirit. Your economic power does not translate over into spiritual power. So here then is the larger point James makes for rich and poor. The poor Christian needs to be reminded of his blessings. He's got something better than money. He's united with Christ who has been exalted to the heavens. And so even the poorest Christian is seated with Christ in heavenly places. He's got the best seat in the universe. He has the riches that really matter. He has every spiritual blessing in Christ right now. The poor man is rich. He's fabulously wealthy beyond all imagining. He's been given a dignity and a status that a stock market crash can't take away. He's been given a dignity and an honor that is his to keep. He's got a future inheritance that is certain and secure that will not fade away. That's the identity of the poor Christian. But if the poor brother needs to be affirmed, the rich brother needs to be challenged. If the poor needs to be reminded he has an absolutely guaranteed future heavenly inheritance, the rich man needs to be reminded of the temporariness and the transience of his earthly wealth. It's not guaranteed. The rich Christian needs to remember his riches are not trustworthy. Wealth is deceitful. He should not boast in what he possesses because moth and rust will eat away at his earthly fortune. His wealth is fragile. And so he needs to be humble and he needs to remember where true riches, lasting riches, are found. He needs to trust God alone and not rely on his economic status for happiness or security or salvation. He needs to live with humility. The rich Christian must be rich 
in humility. The more exalted he is in earthly wealth, the lower he must stoop in order to be saved. James, following Jesus, turns the world's economics upside down. In Christ, the poor are rich and the rich are poor. The poor are lifted up and the rich are brought low. The poor are affirmed and the rich are challenged. Just as the poor man should thank God for his true riches, so the rich man should thank God that he's been humbled because without that humbling, there is no salvation. You see what's happening here in these words of James? James gives to the rich and poor in the church new identities. New ways of seeing themselves and seeing their circumstances. The poor man's got a new sense of honor and the rich man has a new sense of humility. James opens his letter saying, Brothers, when you encounter various trials, count them as joy because they test your faith. And that testing produces patience and patience or steadfastness leads to maturity and completeness. And we looked at this, how James teaches, James shows us how trials help us to grow, to grow towards maturity. And then he moves into wisdom, which is really an outworking of trials in our lives. Uh, Trials expose what we lack in the way of wisdom so we can ask God for it. So he moves from trials to wisdom, and he hasn't really changed the subject in those first eight verses. I don't think he's really changed the subject when you come to verses 9 and following either. James's letter is kind of like a snowball rolling downhill. He's not starting new subjects. He's incorporating something new into the argument he's building. And so it starts with trials, and he adds wisdom into it, and now he's going to add economics into it, and then after that he's going to add temptation into it, and it just kind of keeps snowballing, getting bigger and bigger, taking in more and more different topics and showing how they all are webbed together, how they all relate to one another. The argument accumulates more and more elements as you go. So in verses 9 through 11, he's still talking about trials and he's still talking about wisdom. Trials lead to wisdom and wisdom leads to how we handle our economic situation. And then that economic situation has certain temptations that come with it. So he's going to move into that next. But the point is this how these things are linked together. Whether you are rich or poor, your economic situation is a trial that requires wisdom. That's what James wants you to see. Wherever you are on the economic spectrum, your economic condition is a trial that requires wisdom. Now, in the case of poverty, I think that's easy to see. That's pretty obvious, right? Everyone knows that having very little money is a hardship. No one doubts poverty is a test that requires faith and wisdom to pass. If you've been poor or in a difficult financial situation, you know that. It's hard to be poor. It's hard to know how you're going to make ends meet. Poverty puts us in tempting situations. We're tempted to compromise to make ends meet. And so poor Christians have to learn patience and resilience. There's a certain kind of wisdom they need to endure this trial faithfully. But that's not really all that surprising. We know that about poverty. What is surprising is that James would also consider riches to be a kind of trial. But it's true. Riches are a trial, a test requiring great wisdom to pass. Great riches pose great temptations to those who possess them. You know, I like to say God loves you. 
and has a difficult plan for your life. God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. It does not matter how much money is in your bank account. There are going to be difficulties. And there are certain difficulties that attend economic prosperity. Prosperity, in some ways, is a bigger task than poverty. After all, Jesus never said it's harder for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But he did say that about a rich man. The rich are warned more than any other category of persons in Scripture. The rich receive more warnings than any other category of persons in Scripture. Riches are a test in disguise. A cleverly disguised trial. It's easy to overlook the adversity built into prosperity. Because given the chance, all of us, I would guess, would choose wealth over poverty if we had to make that choice. But wealth is dangerous. Scripture shows this again and again. When we're rich, it becomes tempting to take what we have for granted. We are tempted to become complacent and comfortable. And in the midst of our prosperity, we're tempted to forget God. Moses feared this would happen with Israel. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he tells them, He tells the Israelites, when you get into the land and become prosperous, beware of saying to yourselves, my power has gotten me this wealth. But if you look at it, the way Moses frames that in Deuteronomy 8, it's really in terms of a test. He frames it as a test, a a prosperity test for Israel. Just as God tested the Israelites in the wilderness with poverty, so he's going to test them in the land with prosperity. It's a test. Cotton Mather uh, feared this same kind of thing that Moses did for Israel. Cotton Mather feared the same for New England colonists in the 17th century. As he saw them growing in wealth, he also saw them falling away from the faith. And so he said, religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. That's always the danger. It's always the danger. Now, if I were to say, which of these two categories, rich and poor, they're rich Christians and poor Christians, which category do you belong to? You know, measuring wealth and poverty is always somewhat relative. Uh, It's always somewhat of a relative thing. But we can definitely say most of those James wrote to were poor. Most of those I preach to are rich. In fact, you could make a case that all of us in this room fall into the category of the rich. By global standards, certainly we are. In America, even those who live at the poverty level, what we call the poverty level, live with much greater abundance than most people throughout the world. Our poor in America tend to have indoor plumbing and cell phones and TVs and food to eat. For much of the world, poor really means poor. It means danger of starvation, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. It means living in filth. It means having very little opportunity for education or economic advancement. Now James is going to unpack further what rich and poor need to see about their respective situations in the rest of the letter. But let me go ahead this morning and give you a few hints about where he's going to take this. As we've seen, the poor, the lowly, need to know they are exalted. 
James 2 makes it clear that the way God has exalted the poor man needs to be reflected in the life of the church. James shows us this in the very next chapter. The poor man has been honored by God. He needs to be honored in the church as well. He needs to be treated with honor in the church. The poor man matters to God, and so he should matter to the church's community as well. So James 2 addresses this. James says, if a rich man in fine clothing comes into one of your gatherings, he should not be shown favoritism over a poor man who comes in wearing shabby clothes. The poor man should not be told to go stand in the back while the rich man is given a seat of honor. Because that's not what God's economy looks like. And James says, the poor man should be honored. He should be honored because God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom. And so the poor man should not be dishonored. God cares about the poor, and that should be evident in the life of the church. Poor Christians need to hear this message. James says to the poor Christian, you matter. You are important. You are loved. You have Value and significance, no matter how much you might lack materially, God has shared His very own riches with you. For the rich Christian, riches are temporary. But for the poor Christian, poverty is temporary. Remember that. There is a glorious inheritance on the way. And even now, the poor in Christ have great riches. True riches. And further, this means the poor Christian should be free of those vices that afflict many poor people. There are certain temptations. Poverty is a task. There are certain temptations that come with it. Poor people don't have riches to trust in, but they can still think of riches as the answer to all of life's problems. They can still view money as a kind of savior, and they can seek it as a source of hope. The poor can become money lovers just as much as the rich. The poor are often given over to envy and a spirit of entitlement. Certainly politically, that's true in our day of those who think of themselves as poor. Envy and a spirit of entitlement are driving political forces because people always want something for nothing. They want what others have. But the righteous poor, unlike the unrighteous poor, will have an eschatological rather than a revolutionary outlook on life. The poor are always tempted to revolution because they feel like they've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. So the poor are tempted to want to overthrow society in the name of fairness or justice. But revolution never produces justice. Instead, James gives the poor an eschatological perspective. Not revolutionary, but eschatological James says, look at the big picture of what God is doing in your life. Your poverty is not the whole story, and it's certainly not the end of the story. The gospel gives the poor all the riches and honor and glory they could ever want. So even if they never get great earthly wealth, they have something far better. We'll see how James unpacks this as we move our way through the letter. What about the rich? What are the rich called to? Well, in a word, the rich are called to generosity. With great riches come great responsibilities. With great privilege comes great obligation. Whereas the poor needs to see how different the social is from the spiritual, the rich needs to see that the spiritual and social go together. So if you have social status, high social status, you need to share that high social status to the spiritual benefit of others. 
The rich are to use their riches to spread help and hope. Help in the form of good deeds done to rescue others from their suffering. And hope in the form of sharing the gospel. The rich are in a position to minister in word and deed. And James, throughout the letter, points out to the rich several of these opportunities. Later in chapter 1, he's going to define real religion or true religion in part as caring for widows and orphans. These are the most helpless members of society, widows and orphans. They're people who can't do anything for themselves. They can't fend for themselves or provide for themselves. The rich have an obligation to them. James 2 is all about the way good works flow out of our faith. And James illustrates those works this way. He gives several illustrations, but this is one of them. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and you say, go in peace and be warm and filled, without giving them what they need for the body, what good is that kind of faith? If a rich man's faith does not compel him to share what he has, to meet the bodily needs of others, it's not a saving faith in James' view. In chapter 5, James alludes to the wicked rich who abuse the poor, not paying them their due, withholding wages. The rich are often in a position to gain the system. The system is often set up by the rich to favor the rich, and so it allows them to take advantage of the poor. That seems to be at least part of what James is addressing there. He sees this as a great injustice on the part of the rich. The rich have to remember people matter more than possessions. People matter more than property. People matter more than money. The lives of the rich should reflect those kind of kingdom priorities. Valuing people over property. All throughout Scripture, the righteous rich are distinguished from the unrighteous rich by their involvement with and care for the poor. A great example of this is seen in Psalm 112. Psalm 112 describes a righteous rich man. We find he's a man who walks with the Lord. Verse 3 says his house is filled with riches. But how does he work out his righteousness as a rich man? Verse 9 says one aspect of his lifestyle is he distributes freely to the poor. And you see this again and again in Scripture. Proverbs says, blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs says, he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. Proverbs says, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. This is the obligation, the calling of the rich man. Now, of course, the righteous rich will also seek to be wise in how he helps the poor. Some forms of helping actually hurt because they subsidize immorality or they subsidize self-destructive life patterns on the part of the poor or they steal away someone's dignity in the way the help is offered. We're going to look at those kinds of things as we work our way through the letter. We'll unpack those things as we get deeper into James. Help that really helps is actually very difficult to offer. And that's largely because what the poor lack is not really so much financial capital as it is social capital. It's not just money that they lack. It's not just financial capital. It's social capital. It's the skills and the knowledge and the network of relationships that would enable them to rise above their poverty rather than fall right back into it. Throwing money at the poor is not a long-term solution. I think we prove that in our own society. Throwing money at the poor does not actually improve their situation. It addresses symptoms, but not the root of the problem. 
It takes deep personal engagement with the poor to actually lift them out of poverty. And that's what James calls us to. Well, finally, you might wonder, why does God leave rich and poor side by side in his church? Why why do rich and poor have to live together side by side in the church? Why this socioeconomic diversity among the people of God? God could have decreed equality. Why not do it? Well, sure, as the poor do what they can do to better their situation, as the rich seek to ameliorate the suffering of the poor, rich and poor are brought closer together. They're brought closer together relationally and economically. That's part of it. We all benefit from the fact that they're rich and poor in the church. But you still have distinct categories of rich and poor in the church, even after the rich have helped the poor. Why is that? Well, one thing that's very, very interesting to me about this passage in verses 9 through 11 is the vocabulary James uses here and the way that these words are used elsewhere in the New Testament. All of these terms for rich and poor and humiliation and exaltation, this is stock vocabulary for Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament. In other words, these are gospel phrases. They're loaded phrases. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians 8, we read that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, So that by his poverty or lowliness, we might be made rich. We might be exalted. It's all there. James' whole vocabulary is repackaged and now applied to Jesus. Or consider the hymn in Philippians chapter 2 that describes Christ's emptiness, his poverty, his humiliation, how he poured himself out on the cross, followed by his exaltation. It's the same language James 1 uses, only now repurposed to talk about Jesus. Jesus playing the part of the rich and the poor in himself. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus describes himself as lowly or poor. But Colossians chapter 2 tells us all the treasures and riches of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. He is lowly and rich, humble and exalted in himself. Jesus is our only lasting treasure. He's the only lasting treasure for rich and poor alike. Without him, we are all bankrupt. With him, we have everything. And why is this? Because Jesus became poor in order to share his riches with us. He has been humbled and exalted for our sakes. And so in Jesus, rich man and poor man, rich Christian and poor Christian come together. He embodies the rich and the poor Christian in himself. Rich Christians and poor Christians can both identify with him. Because riches and poverty are both part of his life experience. Riches and poverty are both part of the gospel story. Again, it's so interesting to me in this letter. One of the reasons James has been criticized by some in the history of the church is because he does not tell the gospel story explicitly. Nevertheless, the gospel story is embedded in everything James says. And that's what we need to see here as well. These exhortations are not just laws given to us, these exhortations to rich and poor. These exhortations are built on the scaffolding of the gospel. This is the flesh and blood put on the skeleton of the gospel. The gospel is the backbone, the structure. The exhortations hang on the gospel. 
The rich need to remember the poverty and humiliation of Christ for their sake. The poor need to remember that Christ's exaltation and infinite riches are now theirs. Everything He did, everything He has, every blessing in Him is for them. The same salvation that exalts the poor humbles the rich. And this is because Christ was both humbled and exalted for our sake. Let's pray together. Father, when we are tempted to turn away from You for the sake of financial gain, when we are tempted to love money more than people or love money more than You, would You keep us faithful? Father, we thank You that the poor have been exalted by Your salvation even as the rich have been humbled by it. And so whether we are rich or poor, may we see Christ as our great and lasting treasure. May the rich see they are the slaves of Christ. May the poor see that they are kings in union with Christ. And may all of us together boast in Christ alone, who was rich but became poor for our sakes in order to enrich us in the way that really matters. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.